Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 6. Two Sides of the Same Coin. I loved my time as a paediatric neurology registrar at York Hill. The people I worked with were both expert and deeply committed. My consultant, John Stevenson, was a font of knowledge, and spending time with him was a real education. John didn't believe in training, rather he believed in education. He would often say, training is for dogs and surgeons. His words, not mine. His expectation was that I would learn by seeing children, reading, and then discussing those children with him. We rarely had sit-down teaching sessions, but every encounter with him increased my knowledge and expertise. The paediatric neurology outpatients were seen in the Fraser of Allender unit, which was a standalone department within the main hospital. It housed not only paediatric neurology, but paediatric neurodisability and all the therapies. This co-location of all the relevant services meant that the children attending the unit did get access to the highest quality care and it meant that there were always people with whom to discuss difficult problems, to ensure that all angles had been considered. I continued to undertake my on-call duties in general paediatrics, but I increasingly became aware that my future lay in child neurology. I was extremely fortunate to be in Glasgow. There were relatively few units in the UK that could provide comprehensive training in paediatric neurology, but Glasgow was, and still is, one of those and I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. One of the common problems that child neurologists are asked to see is the floppy baby. Then, as now, neonatologists rarely sought advice or help from other subspecialists. However, when faced with a floppy baby, they would always seek advice. Sometimes the babies would be brought to see us in the Fraser of Allender unit. Sometimes we would see them in the neonatal unit in the maternity hospital next to York Hill, and sometimes we would go out to see them in one of the surrounding neonatal units. Baby McCulloch was three days old when I went to see her on the neonatal unit. The neonatologist had asked for my help, because he was concerned that she might have a severe underlying neuromuscular disease. When I arrived on the neonatal unit, I found the baby to be a little bit small. She had been 2.8 kilograms at birth, and although she had lost a little bit of weight, Following delivery, as would be normal, she appeared to be otherwise well. She had a nasogastric tube in place to allow milk to be provided. This is a tube that passes through the nose into the stomach. She was lying in the cot on her back with her arms and legs out to the side. I watched her for a while and noticed that she made very little in the way of spontaneous movement. The nurses told me that she had not been able to suck, either on her mother's breast or on a bottle and so had been provided with nasogastric feeds. She otherwise looked to have normal facial features, which was important, as some genetic conditions causing babies to be floppy can be associated with unusual facial features. When I moved in front of her, she was visually alert, and she looked at my face. I examined her fully. Other than the neurological features, she appeared to be completely well, with no obvious problems on examining her heart, abdomen or lungs. On moving her arms and legs, it was clear that she was extremely floppy, 
and when I attempted to pull her into a sitting position, her head flopped back markedly. Despite this, I could feel her resisting me, and it was clear that, although she was extremely floppy, she was not intrinsically weak. She had normal reflexes and appeared to be aware of touch. I did notice, though, that when she opened her mouth, the saliva formed little strings between the top and bottom of her mouth. I was fairly sure that I knew what the problem was. I told the baby's mom that we needed to do some further tests, but that I did not think that this was primarily a problem with either her muscles or her nerves. I told her that I thought the floppiness was likely to be due to a problem with the way the brain was controlling her muscles and nerves. I explained that we would need the results from further testing before I could give more detail, but that my expectation was that the baby would become less floppy over time, but that she would be likely to require continued tube feeding for some time yet. I spoke to the doctors on the neonatal unit and asked for them to arrange for genetic testing to be done on baby McCulloch, specifically looking at her chromosomes. Subsequently, the chromosome analysis came back, showing that there was a missing portion of genetic material on the long arm of chromosome 15. This, coupled with the clinical features, confirmed the diagnosis of what is called Prader-Willi syndrome. So what is Prader-Willi syndrome? Prader-Willi is a lifelong genetic neurological disorder. Typically, the features of Prader-Willi syndrome start even before a baby is born. Babies often don't grow quite as well in the womb as usual, and are often smaller than average at delivery, although many of them will still be within the normal weight range at birth. Some babies will show evidence of impaired swallow even in the womb, with a build-up of amniotic fluid, known as polyhydramnios. At birth, babies with Prader-Willi syndrome are profoundly floppy, with a weak cry, impaired suck, and with reduced spontaneous movement. They may have a particular facial appearance with almond-shaped eyes, but this is not always seen. Typically, babies with Prader-Willi syndrome will require supplemented feeding via a nasogastric tube, although over time most of them will gradually see an improvement in their feeding. Usually, by around nine months of age, babies with Prader-Willi syndrome will be able to feed by mouth. The floppiness gradually improves with time also, although typically children with Prader-Willi syndrome will be delayed in their motor development. On average, children with Prader-Willi syndrome will sit by themselves by about 12 months of age, compared to the norm of around eight to nine months, and will be able to walk by the time they are two years old. Most neurologically intact children will walk before they're 18 months old. Children with Prader-Willi syndrome will often grow more slowly than expected, and nowadays it's common for them to be treated with growth hormone. One of the major features of Prader-Willi syndrome is to do with feeding and nutrition. Although as very young babies they are dependent on supplemental feeding, as discussed previously, normal feeding gradually begins by around 9 months of age. Typically, over the next two or three years, there is a relatively normal pattern of feeding. However, from around four years of age, many children with Prader-Willi syndrome will start to put on weight, sometimes because they are eating excessively, but sometimes simply because of the underlying condition. By around eight years of age, many of these children will show strikingly increased appetite, and it seems that they are often unaware of being full, to the extent that they will dramatically overeat. 
Unless this is carefully controlled through behavioral approaches, children with Prader-Willi syndrome can become very severely obese. This problem with failing to feel full and overeating can continue throughout adult life, although some adults with Prader-Willi syndrome do seem to develop an awareness of being full as they get older. Prader-Willi syndrome also has a significant impact on intellectual development. Over two-thirds of children with this will have some degree of intellectual disability, ranging from mild intellectual disability to very severe or profound cognitive impairment. The majority of children, though, fall within the mild intellectual disability range. Unfortunately, many children with Prader-Willi syndrome do develop quite significant difficulties with their behavior. Many of them show signs of temper tantrums, compulsive behaviors, and oppositional features. In some children, the behavioral features are consistent with the diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder. Many children will have significantly impaired concentration, sometimes leading to a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. There are many medical problems associated with Prader-Willi syndrome, including growth hormone deficiency, infertility, sleep problems, underactive thyroid, and diabetes. Although this seems like a very long list of very serious problems, the importance of recognizing these issues is to be able to provide parents with appropriate advice about managing the medical problems, good behavioral support around the overeating and oppositional features, appropriate educational support, and long-term medical surveillance. With this support, children with Prader-Willi syndrome can lead rewarding, healthy, and happy lives. Of course, the first discussion with baby McCulloch's mother didn't include a detailed discussion of all the long-term complications. Nevertheless, we did discuss the immediate management of the condition, the likely development over the next two to three years, and I provided her with a broad summary of the long-term future. Clearly, it is not possible to predict in any individual child exactly how the future will pan out. And although recognizing potential problems is important, it's very important to stress that there are no certainties and that the family will be provided with the right kind of help and support along the way. I did continue to see baby McCulloch in the outpatient clinic. When I next saw her at six weeks of age, she was much less floppy, but continued to need nasogastric feeds. She was beginning to smile and seemed interested in her surroundings. Her parents had named her Elsie. Elsie did eventually feed by mouth. Her parents were deeply committed and right from the very beginning were very careful about eating. They recognized that setting a good example would be really important and ensured that from very early on, as Elsie was introduced to solid foods, she was given healthy alternatives. Elsie received input from our physiotherapists and had excellent support from the preschool teachers. I never got to see Elsie going to school because I left Glasgow before that time. But since then, I have seen many children with Prader-Willi syndrome, and I recognize the difficulties that many of these children face, the toll that it can take on families, but also the real rewards that they can bring. Another child I saw around that time was a little boy called Kenny. Kenny had been known to the neurology service for some time, and I was asked to take over his follow-up. Kenny had a condition known as Angelman syndrome. 
One of the complications of this particular disorder is the emergence of an epilepsy which can, in some cases, prove very difficult to treat. Kenny's epilepsy was very variable in its severity, and he had long spells where he had very few problems indeed. From time to time there would be a marked deterioration, and he would need intense input and support from the neurology team. The first time I saw Kenny, he came with his mum. She reported that his epilepsy was very well controlled, and he was having only occasional seizures. Looking at Kenny, he was a bright, cheerful little boy. He had blonde hair and blue eyes. He had an ever-present smile, and although he didn't speak, he was very sociable, and clearly enjoyed interacting with people around him. His balance was poor, and he had a very jerky pattern of movement, but he was very active and kept his mum on her toes. I next saw Kenny as a matter of urgency some three months later. This time he was very different. He was quiet, and although his smile was still present, he really didn't seem to be reacting or responding in the way that he had done when I met him previously. He was still alert, but far less interactive and responsive than I had previously seen. His mum had taken him to the emergency department the previous evening because she was so worried about him. But the doctor who saw him, who examined him thoroughly, couldn't find any obvious problems. He didn't have a temperature, and the doctor didn't feel that there was any abnormality of his conscious level. His mum was, therefore, reassured and allowed to go home. However, she recognised that he was not his usual self, and requested an urgent appointment with me the following morning. In many ways, I agreed with the doctor who had seen him in the emergency department. He certainly didn't have a temperature, and there was no sign of any serious illness. He didn't have any features to suggest that he had a brain infection such as meningitis or any other focal neurological abnormality. Nevertheless, he was different. If I hadn't met him previously, I probably wouldn't have recognised this. Of course, simply listening to his mum provided the necessary confirmation that there was something wrong, and I was in no doubt that her concerns needed to be taken seriously. I immediately arranged for Kenny to have an EEG. EEG, or electroencephalogram, is an electrical recording of the brain. Although it has almost no role in determining whether or not a child has epilepsy, EEG can be extremely helpful in tracking the course of epilepsy, and in particular recognising acute deterioration in a child's epilepsy. Kenny's EEG did indeed provide the answer. As I expected, his EEG showed a pattern of continuous abnormality, known as non-convulsive status epilepticus. Essentially, this means that the EEG showed that there was continuous epileptic activity happening in all areas of Kenny's brain. This pattern of abnormality fully explained the change in Kenny's alertness and behaviour. I treated Kenny with a short course of steroids, and within three days his mother reported that he had completely recovered to his previous self. I continued the steroids for a period of two weeks and then stopped them. Following this, Kenny remained well. For the first few years of his life, Kenny continued to have episodes like this from time to time. Every six to eight months, his mother would recognize an abrupt change in his alertness and responsiveness, and on each occasion, an EEG confirmed a recurrence of non-convulsive status epilepticus. On each occasion, he responded quickly to a short course of steroids, and then remained well for many months. 
Over time, the frequency of these events diminished, and by the time he was a teenager, I learned that Kenny had stopped having any of these events at all. Before we discuss the issue of non-convulsive status epilepticus, I want to discuss Angelman syndrome and reveal why this episode has included both Prader-Willi syndrome and Angelman syndrome. Angelman syndrome is named after a British paediatrician named Harry Angelman, who described three children with developmental impairment and a jerky pattern of movement. He described these children as happy puppets, and that term was used for the condition for many years. The use of the term happy puppet syndrome is unacceptable due to its pejorative tone, and the syndrome is now called Angelman syndrome. This is recognised as a relatively common and readily recognisable disorder, characterised by a smiley, happy appearance with a rather jerky, unsteady pattern of movement. Children with this condition are often very active, with a very poor attention span, and many have significant problems with sleep. Many show a particular fascination from water. From the age of about two years, many children with Angelman syndrome will develop epilepsy, and some will develop severe, sometimes disabling, tremor. Children with Angelman syndrome will have severe intellectual disability and develop little in the way of spoken language, although their ability to communicate will improve with time. As children get older, the epilepsy improves, although it sometimes can re-emerge in adulthood. Like Prader-Willi syndrome, Angelman syndrome is a genetic condition. And like Prader-Willi syndrome, it is caused by a loss of genetic material on the long arm of chromosome 15. There is a very important difference between the two conditions from a genetic perspective. As we've discussed before, we all have two copies of most of our chromosomes, at least 22 out of 23 pairs. Prader-Willi syndrome occurs when the genetic material which is missing is from the paternal contribution to that pair of chromosomes. On the other hand, if the genetic material missing is the maternal contribution, then the child will develop Angelman syndrome. So why does this occur? The technical term that explains this is called imprinting. Essentially, there are genes that only work if they have come from the mother, and genes that will only work if they are inherited from the father. In Prader-Willi syndrome, the missing genetic material contains a gene in which the paternal contribution is normally expressed and the maternal contribution is silenced. If the paternal copy of the gene is missing, the maternal copy can't take its place as it has been turned off by this process called imprinting. By contrast, Angelman syndrome occurs because another gene in the same missing region is only active on the mother's contribution and the copy from the father is switched off. Thus, if the missing region on the long arm of chromosome 15 came from the mother, there will be no active gene. Angelman syndrome can also occur if two copies of the gene are inherited from the father, again no active maternal copy, or if there's an error which leads to the mother's copy being switched off as well as the father's copy. These two conditions are the first in which this process of imprinting was recognised. Despite there being an apparently similar abnormality of the same chromosome, two fundamentally different conditions occur, purely depending on whether the abnormality came from mum or dad. 
fascinating as the mechanism concerned may be, the reality is that this makes very little difference to families in the majority of cases, although for a few families there may be a risk of the problem occurring in another child, and knowing this could be very important. What matters for most families is how the child is affected by the condition, and how best they can be helped. This brings us back to the question of non-convulsive status epilepticus. Non-convulsive status epilepticus is a term which effectively means that a person is in a state of continuous seizure for a period of at least 30 minutes. In this situation, the seizure is characterized by cognitive or behavioral changes rather than by convulsive activity. Non-convulsive status epilepticus can occur in critically ill individuals in the intensive care unit. As a consequence of some drugs, both prescription and illicit drugs, disturbances of body chemistry, brain tumours, but in practice paediatric neurologists see this most commonly in children who are either known to have epilepsy or who are presenting for the first time with epilepsy. Non-convulsive status epilepticus is much more likely to occur in certain types of epilepsy, and the epilepsy associated with Angelman syndrome is one of those. How does a child with non-convulsive status epilepticus present? Typically, it's associated with an alteration in mental status, with confusion, coma and lethargy being well recognised. Some children will have alterations of speech, brief twitching of limbs or face, altered behaviour, or features such as agitation or anxiety. While many of these features are non-specific and can occur in numerous situations other than epilepsy, one clue is a sudden change from a previous typical state to the altered state. In the context of a condition such as Angelman syndrome, this is relatively easy to recognize, although it's important to confirm the diagnosis by undertaking an EEG. The diagnosis is extremely important because the condition is treatable and reversible. It's often challenging for parents whose child has a pre-existing neurodevelopmental problem, as it may be difficult for a doctor who has never seen the child before to recognize the change in behavior. This is why it's always so important to listen to parents. They are always the expert about their child, and although they may not know why a child has developed a particular symptom, parents are, in general, extremely reliable in recognizing such changes. Nevertheless, it can be extremely frustrating for a parent whose child has pre-existing neurodisability and who has a sudden change in behavior unless they are able to access the specialist who knows their child and who will recognize what is going on. Treatment of non-convulsive status epilepticus is variously undertaken with either steroids or with a group of drugs known as benzodiazepines. The latter are a group of powerful anti-epileptic drugs which work against multiple types of seizure and which generally work quickly. In the context of children with epilepsy, they are generally reserved for immediate or short-term treatment of seizures as long-term use tends to result in the body becoming tolerant of the medication. Nobody really knows how steroids work in this situation, but it is known that steroids have multiple effects in the brain. Interestingly, steroids seem to be effective in treating several different types of seizure in childhood, yet rarely have a role in the treatment of adult epilepsy. Returning to Kenny, how did the non-convulsive status cause the changes mum recognised? 
Effectively, the continuous abnormal epileptic activity was interfering with his normal brain rhythms, and Kenny was not able to function as his normal self. Although his mum was able to recognise the change in his behaviour, she didn't know why this had occurred, at least on the first occasion. By the time this had occurred two or three times, she became very expert in recognising the early signs. We confirmed the diagnosis with EEG on the first few occasions, but once it was clear that Kenny's mum could easily tell when the problem was starting, we provided her with the necessary treatment so that she didn't need to wait to access medical advice before she started the steroids. I always encouraged her to let me know when this was the case, and I adjusted Kenny's anti-epileptic drug therapy to try to reduce the frequency of these events. Whether the reasons that the episodes of non-convulsive status epilepticus gradually remitted was anything to do with the treatment that I gave, or whether this was simply due to maturation of Kenny's brain, we will never know. I hope you're continuing to enjoy these podcasts. If so, I'd be grateful for any feedback which you can give by rating and reviewing the episode on your podcast provider. I look forward to speaking with you next time. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode, where I'll be telling more stories of amazing children and their families. Goodbye. Goodbye.